Welcome, welcome back to the Boxing One Podcast. This is your co-host, John Richards, a.k.a. Jay Rich, and I'm here with Chris Lasper, a.k.a. C. Last. What's up, homeboy? What up, Jay Rich? Hey, look, we're on episode number 57, man, and we were wrecking our brains trying to figure out who is this episode going to be committed to. But we couldn't find a person, so we went with something else, right? Sauce, sauce, sauce. Who got that sauce, that Heinz 57 sauce? I know people are going to be mad because we didn't go A1, but Heinz 57 is a good sauce for some steaks. And we're not even going to talk about how we want our steaks cooked, right? Because that's going to be a whole other debate. (laughs) It depends, man. It depends. It depends on if it's well cooked. If it's not, I'll just go ahead and eat the steak. If so, we might need some sauce. So this episode dedicated to Heinz 57 we didn't get no marketing money for that do we no nah, we should we should reach out though <laughs> all good welcome you guys you know what we do on this podcast man we discuss christ sports culture theology through the lens of the gospel and that's what we do every single episode we appreciate you guys for joining us and we're going to start where we usually start with just sports In our labor of love, which is the NBA, apparently we don't play basketball much anymore, but we still love hoops and we love the NBA. Right in the middle of the NBA playoffs, some people are in the first round series, some people are in second round series. So, bro, question for you, okay? We just experienced what? LeBron James, game seven being LeBron James, okay? He carried the Cleveland Cavaliers to a victory against the Indiana Pacers. So me and you, man, if we're sitting in the barbershop about to get these fresh lineups, fresh tapers, you know, I got to ask you this question, man, to start the debate. Okay. Who is greater game seven, LeBron or game six, Jordan. Now, if you don't know who game six, Jordan is, you're not a basketball fan. Okay. 1998 NBA finals down by one. Jordan comes down and he does a crossover and actually maybe pushes off your man Russell a little bit to give him the ball. (laughs) He did stole it from Carmelo, right? Yo, he pushed off so hard. It was terrible. He would have got three days in school suspension if that would have happened at school. At least three, at least three. But we all remember that iconic image before he came back. To play with the Wizards as that being his last shot of his career. Game six, clinching the NBA Finals and the third straight title for the Bulls. Now, question is, we've seen game seven LeBron and what he does. And we've seen game six Jordan and what he does. Which would you rather have? Which is a greater accomplishment? Game seven LeBron or game six MJ? What you got? See, you got me with a trick question, Jay Rich. And I've been wrestling all day. You should have asked me this question in the afternoon instead of texting me early this morning. And here's the the issue that I have. Like, the stats, I honestly think, are going to go in LeBron's favor here. But Jordan didn't ever need a Game 7 to clinch a Finals. And so I'm wrestling. He always got it done in Game 6, and he's 6-0. So what do you do with that? But then I watched LeBron beat Golden State in seven and cap off a 3-1 comeback. He was incredible last night. He played that whole series and 
No one else in the series for the Cavs scored 20 points in any of the games. That's crazy to think about. Like, he balled out of his mind. In his 15th year in the league when Melo is barely uh, contributing at all to OKC, he's clearly (laughs) still the best player in the league. And so everything in me believes I'd still rather have Jordan, but I think everything in the stats has to go LeBron. Yeah, and then on top of that, LeBron has never lost a first-round series. We can't say the same about Jordan, right? Come on, fam. We're not going to use that, are we? (laughs) I'm just saying. But if we're talking about Game 7 versus Game 6, I got to go with Game 7, man. A whole lot more pressure. This is a win-or-go-home game, okay? MJ, they could have gone back and won Game 7 later on after that game against the Jazz, right? So he didn't have as much pressure as LeBron had on him. And you could tell that LeBron had the pressure. Like he came out scoring like a madman. I looked up and he had scored half of the Cavs points. Unstoppable in the post. He was doing it all. So I'm going to go with game seven LeBron, even though he didn't have to get there. Like I think LeBron was coasting most of this series. And you could see it deferring to teammates and all that. And then he just kind of flipped the switch and said, hmm, I don't really want to go fishing yet. I don't want the TNT team actually showing my squad fishing just now. So I'm going to go with All right. All right, so just, seven LBJ. Just two points real fast. Jay Rich, are we going to act like that Jordan wasn't losing to the Celtics with Bird, McHale, and Parrish when he was taking them first-round L's? Like legendary basketball teams. Like are we Bro. really going to do that? Are we going to pretend that LeBron James didn't have rec league players on his team his rookie, his first year in the playoffs? Are we just going to and pretend that he won a second year team and still got him to the playoffs? <laughs> so if we're going to look at both of their teams, the second year Mike and LeBron's first year in the playoffs, who had the better squad? Oh, LeBron for sure. What? Name one of Jordan's this... teammates the second year. Bruh, it's because it's so long ago, but do you know LeBron's teammates? Yeah, I know he got he got all-stars. <laughs> he got an all-star. Man, and come Jordan on, have bro. Bro. Come on, bro. You talking about that Kevin first Love LeBron team? Way better. No, no, no. Kevin I'm Love talking about better than the second best player on Jordan's team. I'm Jordan's talking about year. the fr- I'm talking about the first LeBron team, bro. The first LeBron team in the playoffs. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was. Larry the first was the second best player. Yeah, that team exactly. Was like, Come teams on, man. Equal. Yeah. Come on, them man. Teams is equal trash. Yeah. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Okay. And then the Straight second thing trash. is if LeBron leave, he had to win game seven because game five, he hit the game winner. <laughs> he jumped up on the Cavs uh, little thing where the PA announcers be. Now, you can't come back and lose game seven after you jumped up on the thing in game five. And then if he leaves, you really can't jump up on the thing in game five, lose game seven, and then check the deuces at your hometown. So, I mean, you yeah, have, he, he had you to there jumping up there with the confetti. Like, like you just <laughs> won the finals. Like, y'all about to hang a banner, dude. I know you, you just made. Turn that into Renaissance art. <laughs> Man, if you find that picture on the web, that is the funniest thing in the world right now. So awesome, man. I, I, I thought it was a cool moment, but I was like, really? You're just going to jump up on the scores table for game five? Okay. Especially if you know you're leaving. I see. I see that. I see that. 
You know, he was caught up in the moment, though, man. He had a big-time three. So I think both of us are agreeing on this. LeBron James, Game 7, LeBron James, we're going to take him over Game 6, MJ, just because of the body of work. Now, granted, MJ didn't have too many. He didn't have any seven-game first-round series because they only went five. But I still like the fact that Game 7, LeBron, is a monster and unstoppable. And don't forget the Craig Elo shot. Oh, huge shot. Huge shot. Jordan has some good, good shots, some huge shots, but they haven't been in game sevens. <laughs> so look, man, um, we got to talk about this issue because I think this is one that has impacted our community significantly. Both of us kind of grew up, man, on the Cosby show. Like that was the iconic show for any African-American family sitting around the television, you know where all of us were during primetime midweek. Sitting and hanging. Followed by a different world. And hanging out with the Huxtables. And then followed by Denise going off to college. We had to have it. It was must-see TV before must-see TV. Okay? Especially when Rudy scored all those touchdowns. Oh, man, that was the greatest episode, actually. I'm glad you said that. Followed by the track and field episode. I like that one, too. But here's the thing, man. Last Thursday, we sat and heard a jury verdict against Bill Cosby, who was convicted on three counts of sexual assault. This is like a crazy fall from grace for one of our iconic Mount Rushmore figures in entertainment. Everybody loved Dr. Huxtable. And over the past several months, we've heard several stories about people who have accused him of sexually assaulting them. And it finally came to a head in a Pennsylvania courtroom where he was convicted. So by a couple, we mean 60. Yeah, exactly. I don't mean to undermine that at all, for sure. And that's just that body of evidence is really something that you really can't overcome and say, oh, well, you know, it's just a couple. No, one is enough. One is way more than enough. So, bro, what do we do with this? What do we do with this iconic image? What do we do with these shows that we grew up on and love? Do we start to think back and say, wow, was he like that back then? And can I still watch this show and enjoy it? I don't know, man. Like, as much as you realize that it wasn't uh, Dr. Huxtable on trial, like, like it's gonna taint things. Like, there's no way that I mean, the the reason that Beyond Black America that it was so widely embraced in the '80s is because it just had this wholesome appeal, right? It's just giving you an um, access into Black America that you never get to see, right? At the exact same time when NWA is about to pop off um, and give you insight into the hood in America, um, then you got the opposite kind of juxtaposed is like, here's wholesome black America, right? Um, I think I remember the one time he might have said one cuss word on the show when uh, Theo thought he was old enough to live on his own and pay all his own bills. Mm. Um, and I think I think that was the one episode I even heard one swear word in the entire like catalog of shows. And it's just hard to hold on to that wholesomeness when you think 
of everything that's transpired. It's hard not to like have your mind go back in and fill in the blanks. Yeah. It's really difficult, man. It's really difficult. And I don't know if I can still watch and just feel like I'm watching it in good conscience per se, because a lot of this stuff was happening around that time. And it's just amazing to see, like, even in that context, you know, we talk about trying to look at things through the lens of the gospel. Like, this is someone who is beloved in the community, whose co-stars even loved him. And I think that even they were shocked. I mean, many of them haven't really spoken up much about it. But I think that many of them were even shocked at that someone who has this iconic imagery in kind of the television world was living another life outside of that that was completely outside of what he portrayed um, on television. Um, and it's just, you know, kind of it's, it's a reminder to us all, too, bro. Like, hey, listen, um, allow your public life um, to align closely with your private life. And that's part of our Christian witness, part of you and I's Christian witness. We want to be able to say, hey, the same John, the same Chris that you see publicly is the one that you're going to see privately. Not that we're perfect, but we're striving towards that mark that that Paul talks about that Christ has set for us to move towards sanctification. Yeah. And so the great irony for the Christian is um, the counterculturalness of the gospel is that we expose our own sin and hide our own good. So we aim to be out in our communities making a difference, but we keep it off Instagram, you know, and um, then we're accountable for our lives to brothers and sisters um, to investigate um, areas where we may be resistance to the sanctification process or down with like holding on to idols or um, just holding on the secret sin or evil. Uh, we expose our own lives um, even when it's difficult and it's hard. But and I, Jay Rich, I just think it's one more thing. Um, I obviously grew up with a ton of admiration for Bill Cosby, starting with Fat Albert for me, even before the Cosby show. He had Gordon Gartrell episode. We can't forget that one either. Um, mm -hmm. But Jay Rich, he was harsh in his comments on the black community in a lot of instances and um, saying some things that probably had a lot of truth in them, but not very much grace in a kind of pointing my finger down at you, kind of condescending way. Um, stop buying Jordans, pull your pants up, get an education and you can fix your own communities. Um, just just not very gracious, just didn't feel like always, hey, he's in this struggle with us, but he's outside of us, pointing his finger. And I know he did a ton of good and gave a lot of money back in the temple and helped a lot of people get their educations in the black community. And I don't wanna discard that and not paint a, a pure, like a whole picture, but um, that always just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like, hey, I understand what you're trying to say, but the way that you're getting it across seems like it's just alienating you from the black community. And I think a lot of people still remember that. And um, that's definitely factored in to everything that's happened since the announcement of his guilt. Yeah, certainly, certainly it has. So continue prayers to those who have been impacted by this, including the families of victims and victims and even Cosby's family itself and those who know him. Um, and just continue to pray for everybody who is involved.
Hey, we want to talk about Black Jesus now, right? <laughs> oh boy, oh, oh boy. So Jay Rich, let me let me uh, throw something out at you, um, <clears throat> because we we aim to do a podcast and we want it to be for the culture, right? And we realize that we have um, some people who listen in. We have been graced by God to have relationships within uh, His church that are multi-ethnic, and so. When we get to this next topic, um, I'm hoping you can shed a little bit of light for someone who's never heard of the topic, um, kind of introduce it, and then for all Christ followers to kind of say, like, hey, what do we do with this um, in order to better follow Christ? So last or this week, early this week, correct? Yeah, it was on Saturday. It was yep. on Saturday. Um, James Cone passed away, and he... Um, is identified with something called black liberation theology. And my guess is uh, most people have probably heard of it, but would struggle to define it in any type of way. And then even if they had heard of it, wouldn't know like, Hey, what do I do with this? Like if I familiarize myself with it, how does it make me a better Christ follower in any way? So first question is, can you just kind of give us, uh, uh, a simple overview for someone who's never kind of heard the phrase black liberation theology. Can you introduce us into James Cone's thoughts in that matter? Yeah. So around the 1960s and seventies, and this is around the time where black Panther uh, movement is happening, where a lot of black liberation movements in the secular context are happening. Uh, a man by the name of James Cone got a hold of uh, this theology, and that just basically just means um, the study of God, uh, a theology that came out of Latin America that basically says this. It says that, that God is actually the God of the oppressed and not the oppressor. And for African-Americans who were being oppressed at that time, this was monumental for a lot of folks to hear that. And, you know, we've always known about those Exodus stories in Exodus, but connecting them with the cross and connecting them with, with Jesus and, and God being not the New Testament God in Christ, but also the Old Testament God who cares about our oppression um, and something that black people have done for centuries. But now here comes a man in James Cone who kind of puts language around all of that. So so he started this movement, probably unintentionally, uh, called the Black Liberation Theology Movement, where, where folks were thoughtful about saying, hey, God cares about our oppression. In fact, he is the God of the oppressed. And if you are someone who is oppressing others, you're actually not on God's side. Now, in the 60s and 70s, you can probably tell that he was not very popular and not very popular today. Uh, in fact, he said the scandal is that the gospel means liberation, that this liberation comes to the poor and that it gives them the strength and the courage to break the conditions of servitude. Now, if that doesn't sound like uh, post-war uh, antebellum South, or if it doesn't sound like the civil rights movement, I don't know what does. So Cone 
is one of the first African-American theologians who actually puts language around what we're experiencing and saying, hey, God is the God who is going to free us from this oppression because he's actually on our side, not you white Christians. <laughs> Again, not very popular with a lot of people. And then part two, and that was a great explanation, by the way. Um, part two, then what do we do with it? Well, I think that Cone actually had a very great um, contribution to what we call the study of Christ and who he is called Christology, right? Because uh, a lot of people were kind of bothered by the fact that this white Jesus kept showing up everywhere, um, whether it be in sermons or in print, uh, in the media. So he comes along and says that God is actually black, like flat out. <laughs> Everybody knows that Jesus, God in the flesh, um, was uh, Middle Eastern, but we all know that a lot of the depictions of him were, were Caucasian, blonde hair, blue eyed. So uh, here's what we do with what Cone contributed to theology and to Christology. We celebrate the fact that he actually tried to swing the pendulum back to where we had a Christ-centered perspective on oppression, a Christ-centered perspective on who he was and what he actually looked like. Now, here's the part that swings the pendulum a little bit too far, because I think that he got into angry black man mode uh, quite often that didn't, as you mentioned earlier, didn't extend that same grace that we need to extend with the truth that we're extending to people. So I think we celebrate his contribution because it actually helped swing that pendulum. But we also are kind of uh, reserved and saying, OK, wait. Uh, we don't want to swing that pendulum all the way back to the other side because then we become exactly what we're opposing. Amen. That's good. That's good. That's good. I think that's a that's a balanced perspective, and I hope it helps someone who kind of says, "Oh, what's going on?" Maybe someone who's listening and just kind of hearing this for the first time that that is a good launching place to kind of get a framework for Cone's contributions. Yeah. And if anybody's interested in reading thing, anything by him, I think The Cross and the Lynching Tree is actually a pretty decent read. Obviously, again, you want to think about him swinging the pendulum a little bit too far, but he takes this whole concept of Jesus uh, being a cursed thing in the Old Testament, talking about the cursed things hang on a tree, hanging on the cross, and connects it experientially with the African-American community as we were lynched for hundreds of years. So he connects the cross with the lynching tree. Do you know how impactful that could have been for a lot of African-Americans who were seeing uh, their own people being hung from these trees and then connecting it with the experience of Jesus? So I would definitely commend that to you, yeah. fully knowing that that's, that pendulum could swing a little bit too far in Cone's writing. Yeah. So, and we would say just use the gospel as... Um kind of the baseline there for what we hold on to and what we kind of say, hey, this doesn't sound like all the gospel to me. Um, but one of the cool things you just mentioned is like him saying like in the book, Jesus was the first lynchy. And just to um, just to think about that, that he definitely had a different way of just connecting the black experience to um, 
the Bible. So, yeah, it's been a crazy week, a lot to process. We only got to touch on three topics, but so much has been going on in our community this week. We have so many topics, man. It's hard to pick just three, but I think we got three good ones. Great job explaining that too, bro. Thanks, man. Speaking of reading lists and and being able to give our listeners something to actually read or listen to or kind of process, we try to do this each episode. Can you let me know anything that you've been reading or listening to lately that might encourage some folks who are listening to the podcast? Man, I think I'm still with what I had last week, the Timothy Brindle album, just the kind of along the same lines, just Christ in the Old Testament and still reading um, The Faithful Preacher by Tabidi. I don't get a chance to work through books at the rate that I would like to. Um, But also, I've actually preached in my cousin's church. I filled the pulpit for him in a little rural church. It was great. But I had mentioned two books that I had forgotten. And my kids were like, Dad, get us those books, The Cross and the Switchblade and Run, Baby Run, two books, um, both tell the same story about a, the conversion of a gang member. I remember we used to give out those a lot when I did juvenile prison. Um, and their narratives, there's not a ton of theology in them other than just saying God's still working even in hard places or places we perceive as hard. All hearts are probably the same to God. And um, But fascinating reads, both of them. So The Cross and the Switchblade and Run, Baby, Run, two books. I really enjoyed right when I first became a Christian, just kind of reminders that God does work in the city, that no uh, urban area is too tough for him to change hearts. Awesome, man. So I've been, uh, I'm getting ready to teach a class on Wednesdays on sharing Jesus without being awkward, Um, a class on sharing your faith. So I've been reading a lot of books on evangelism, not that I don't already, but uh, one of the ones that I'm looking at currently is organic outreach for churches infusing evangelistic passion in your local congregation obviously it's written for churches but it also has a lot of individual application in the book it's written by kevin harney who's a pastor out in california and again you have to contextualize this stuff you know we we our audience is in a different culture like we're more urban setting and a lot of these books are written for a suburban context so I would say even when you read this, think about your particular context. You got to think about barbecues, okay? <laughs> when you're trying to reach people. Sometimes you can't re- invite them over for dinner. Invite them over for a barbecue. You know what I mean? A little high do not put Hans 57 on their steak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's not a legit urban barbecue. If, you, if you're using the Heinz 57 on the steak, you are not in the urban context. Canceled. Especially when you when you grilling no sir so organic outreach for churches check that out definitely would commend that to you all all right bro closing shout outs man what you got this week i'm a i mean we talked about sauce 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 i gotta go with jerk sauce and whoever invented that like they get my shout out for the week that there's a reason somebody figured out in god's common grace how he ordains things these spices go together and if you blend them together just right you can come up with this and i see god's common grace most clearly in jerk jamaican jerk barbecue sauce and that's the reason that i don't have to thank the lord put hans 57 on anything because jamaican jerk sauce exists bro already man listen my closing shout out was gonna be to a young man man i'm super proud of his name is daryl lampkin his actual nickname is scooter same as my son's 
he visited us about four years ago. You know, I've been kind of mentoring him, chatting with him through school stuff. He actually just finished his uh, Farm D program, doctor in pharmacy program at the University of Georgia. Go dogs. Um, and he's oh, getting right. ready to sit for ex exams and getting ready to be a legit pharmacist, man. So I remember this kid when he was a little whippersnapper, just super All proud right. of him. The big shout scooter. To, yeah, we call him big scooter now. So shout out to Daryl Lampkin, man. Super proud of you, bro. And looking forward to seeing you possibly this summer as he comes up to kind of hang out with us. So black brilliance on that, display. Yeah. That's what's up, homie. All right, you guys. That's been episode number 57 of the Boxing One Podcast. Me and the homie C Lance are certainly glad that you guys were able to join us. Uh, make sure you go over to Twitter, follow us at Boxing One Podcast. Hit us up on Facebook at Boxing One Podcast. Join one of our groups. Also, go over to the website, boxingonepodcast.com. All of our episodes are up there and subscribe via iTunes. Yes, we're all over the place. We are everywhere. We out here. And we're going to see you guys on episode number 58 next go round. Until then, grace and peace to you all.